John chapter 3, uh, as I mentioned, we touched on John 3 and really focused on verse 17. We often focus on 16, for God so loved the world, right? But there's so much more that's here in, uh, well, really, in this entire conversation that he has with Nicodemus. And we're not going to cover that all today either. But I want to read their exchange uh, as a whole, and then we're going to zero in on some things that are, are more specific. It is, by the way, if you're a version Bible app person, you can find that in the events section of that app, and you'll be able to have those notes uh, there. Now, there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who, can't, who has come from God. No one could perform the signs you were doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly I say to you, nah, I'm changing translations right there in the middle, aren't I? Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you don't understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen. But still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. And then John writes this, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into this world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will come, or excuse me, will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. John, did you notice John just went straight from recording to preaching right there in the middle of the gospel? It's pretty cool when you remember that that's what's going on. We'll get to what John says because that's really the section I want to look at uh, this morning. I want to look uh, primarily there at verses 20 and 21. But before we do, there's some things that we have to get to. So Nicodemus comes to Jesus in the night and, you know, you have a good valid question if you're asking the question, why did he why do you have to sneak? Nicodemus is a well-respected Pharisee and teacher among his people. He's somebody with a lot of clout. He's somebody with a lot of education, and he's got some questions. And I think that speaks to the why. 
sometimes uh, it is very difficult for people in a leadership position, regardless of what that is, Sunday school teachers, preachers, elders, deacons, missionaries, whoever, to just say those words, you know, I don't understand. It really should be that if you're going to be in that sort of a position, you should have a spirit that very quickly will say, you know, I don't understand, I don't know, but let's go to the Lord who understands, right? It should not be something that we hide. But when pride takes over, it becomes something that we hide. That would be one of the whys, but there are some others that I want us to consider this morning. It's all speculation in a way, although I I think we can make an educated guess here in a second. Um, But there's a little bit of speculation as to exactly why he went at night. Some of it is so uh, tied to our human nature, we feel pretty strongly that we understand exactly why he went. Okay, But it is speculation still. One of those things may be this. This may have been the chief one. The blowback he would get from other Pharisees if they found out that he went to Jesus with an honest inquiry. Why would you go to him? We think he's a false prophet. Why would you go to him? And, I, and we get a hint as to why in his question. But there would be some blowback. There would be those Pharisees and others, the high priests, the teachers of the law, some of the other priests. They would have had some very serious problems with him going to him and just asking questions as if Jesus was a valid teacher and rabbi to answer those questions. When the Pharisees and scribes and teachers of the law and Sadducees would address Jesus as rabbi, most of the time they meant that ironically. They meant that sarcastically. They meant that in deep disrespect. It was a mocking thing they did, but it was a thing to butter him up so that maybe he would answer their question. They didn't believe that he had any right to call himself that. We'll get to that and why I think Nicodemus uses that term here in just a second. But fear from blowback from people with those bad attitudes would be a very understandable reason why he might not want to address Jesus, say, in the middle of the temple temple courts or something like that, and instead goes to him in private. Not necessarily, I want to say with this list, these are not necessarily bad reasons. These are just real reasons, okay? You might look at these and and have negative feelings about, well, what a coward. I understand it, and I think Jesus and John will address this both, but this is a reason. Second reason that I have here is that he he may also just be avoiding all of the stuff that comes with addressing a teacher in a crowd. You ever been at a workshop, seminar, something like that? may have been religious or not, but they, they said something that you wanted to follow up on. Maybe, you know, it's work-related, and they said something that just it tied into your passion for what you do, and you wanted to go and ask them a couple of follow-up questions about, well, but now what, what about this, and, and have you ever tried this, and could you, know, could you clear this up for me? Maybe there's a misunderstanding. But you, never, you go up there, but you can never get to them, right? And then they end up being ushered off by somebody, a workshop, this happens a lot, uh, they end up getting ushered off to lunch or whatever's next, and you're sitting there standing there with your question, and you never got to ask. Or you finally get your way up to the front of the line, and you ask your question, and, and they start to answer it, and somebody butts in with, oh, yeah, and, and then the next thing you know, it's off, and you're like, but hey, hey, come back, and your opportunity is all gone. And maybe he felt like if he could catch Jesus by himself, that he wouldn't have that, and he wouldn't have, again, the critics on his side, so to speak, who would jump in and start an argument and ask a ridiculous question like they were prone to do and just completely derail the entire conversation. So maybe that's why he goes to him at night. Again, that all makes sense. Uh, this last one that I'm going to share, there were more, uh, possibly just the one I started with, really, 
the vulnerability that comes with having to admit you don't know something, that you're not understanding something. And as a leader, not wanting to let that show, I'll ask, I'll ask him in private. I don't need everybody else out here, you know, thinking I don't know what I'm talking about. Just that vulnerability and maybe even a deeper vulnerability that maybe Nicodemus has a hint of belief. Now, Jesus, when he speaks about the you that because you don't believe, he's talking not just to Nicodemus, but to all of those unbelievers that he's been wrestling with as he is starting to teach and preach about his messiahship and the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus himself actually gives us a hint that perhaps there was at least the beginnings, the seedling of faith in himself. So let's look back at some of what we read, and I'll show you what I'm talking about. So back in verse 2, he came to Jesus at night and he said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. Now here's the thing. It would be easy, I think, to assume that Nicodemus is being a smart aleck. Say, well, we know that you're a teacher from God, because sometimes they did this. Okay, they would they would butter him up. We know that you are blah, 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 and everything. But there's something about the wording of what Nicodemus says that I think actually hints that it may not be that sarcasm. In one way, it's that Nicodemus, he takes the statement too far. Okay, He takes it too far to be smart-alecky and, and that sort of a trap because he says, we know that you are from God, and he makes this confession of what could be called faith. No one can do what you're doing unless God is with them. And I think that Nicodemus is telling the truth about his thoughts. I think Nicodemus is actually making a confession here. I don't know who you are. He doesn't say he thinks he's the son of God. He didn't go that far. He doesn't even say, I think you're a prophet. He just says, you know, Something's going on here. I may not comprehend it all, but God is doing something through you that I want to understand. And I think that's I think that's where he is. So that helps us to understand everything else in this conversation, because Nicodemus is not just coming as a cynic. Okay, sometimes we mistakenly think a cynic is a healthy thing to be a skeptic, somebody who asks questions and doesn't just, you know, accept everything at surface level. That is healthy. A cynic is someone who has allowed a root of bitterness to well up within them, and they think negatively about everything that crosses their plate because they've lost the ability to actually objectively evaluate things. It's straight to the negative, straight to the doubt, straight to the bitterness every single time. And I don't see this in Nicodemus. You see it in so many others that address Jesus from the Pharisee party and Sadducee party. Uh, It just doesn't seem to be what's going on here. He seems to be somebody who is really wrestling and really wondering and really asking. I think it's a genuine, sincere uh, search that Nicodemus is going through here. But he still comes in the shadows. He still is not confident enough, even in his own, not yet conclusions, but his own thoughts, that he feels like this is something he can address out in the daylight. And uh, again, Jesus and John address that. I put this here, but this is, this is my way of tethering myself to my outline. Okay, I'm reminding myself with this slide that I can't go into all the other things. This is such a rich piece of Scripture. John 3 uh, is just absolutely packed between the things that Jesus says, that Nicodemus asks, and what John comments on. It is absolutely packed. We could spend weeks here. We will not. I promise no seven-hour sermons today. But we could. 
Absolutely. Uh, do that because it's incredible, the depth. And so I mention this, too, because I want to encourage you to go home just as um, Steve encouraged you to go home and to read Isaiah 53. I'm going to encourage you to go home and reread this again. Look at the questions. Look at the answers. Look at what uh, John then breaks out and says in his commentary on it. There is so much here that shapes the core of who we are as disciples of Jesus Christ. It's really a deep, deep passage and conversation. We just won't have the time to look at all of that. So I just want to focus on a couple of things that Jesus deals with him on. Uh, First, he talks about the new birth. And this is kind of the, the core of their conversation as we look at it with 2020 hindsight, is this concept of being born again. And Jesus tells Nicodemus, we know you can't come into the kingdom of God unless you're born again. It actually is so radically different from everything you've ever known in your life that for you to just try and ease your way in doesn't work. You actually have to die. We'll find out this terminology later. You have to die, be buried with Christ, and raised again, and be born again for this to even translate into the kingdom of God. Your old life has to become your old life for this to work. You have to be all in. There's no no a little bit. Have you ever heard that poem? I should have brought it this morning, but I only thought about it just now. That poem, uh, just Just a Pound of God, Please. You know, I just want a little. I just want enough. I just want to feel a little bit better. I just want, you know, to have a good day. But I, I don't need God the whole bit. And what Jesus is teaching Nicodemus is there is only all in or not in. You actually have to be completely transformed for this to actually even take root in your life. That's the way it is. All new, all Jesus, all in. And Nicodemus goes, okay, so you're saying I've got to be born again. Yes. How does that work? And I love this answer because I'd, I'd like to know the tone of voice that he used. Is it just in wonder or is he smart alecky? You're like, well, I'm not going to crawl back up in there again. Really? This is Nicodemus's answer. Scholarly man, well-educated, and as good as he's got is, we well, can't just crawl back up into the womb and come back out again, Jesus. What in the world are you talking about? You know, it's kind of an adventures in missing the point. And this is kind of what we do, isn't it? Sometimes we're so caught by a question, caught by something we don't understand, that we just go, wow, I just, I can't understand what you're even talking about. It's kind of like when you're learning a new language. You ever had this experience where the person is actually saying things to you that are well within your your vocabulary as you're learning, and they're well within things that you understand, and yet, just right on by you? It's like that. And sometimes it's all just, you know, an, an attitude change in your own mind. Something needs to click. For you to be able to understand what they're saying, but it's like you've you've just kind of you turned yourself out. Oh, I can understand what they're saying, even though they're saying things you clearly could easily understand. This is kind of with Nicodemus, and so he says, "Well, Nicodemus, you're a teacher. You get all this, don't you? Surely you, of all people, you would understand all of this." And he's like, "Well, I don't understand this new birth thing." So Jesus then tries to clear that up with him as well. Still not the total focus. And here's why. Because I think too often we also get really hung up on the mechanics of birth and mechanics of becoming a Christian, which are all important. The new birth, the new creation. Again, core beliefs of our faith. 
But you can spend so much of your your life in Christ focused on the mechanics of the beginning that you forget that that was only an incredibly important moment, but a moment. And you start to treat it as if the moment that you went into the baptistry and came up was the high point of your Christian life. This was the peak. This was it. This was the one perfect moment. This is incredibly important. This is eternally important. So don't hear me saying this is not, because it is incredibly important. I don't think we can say it enough. But this is one important, glorious moment at the beginning of what is an increasingly important and increasingly glorious life in the kingdom of God. This is not the most important moment. This is the beginning of a life that glorifies the Lord Jesus Christ. And as you grow, that just increases and grows itself. And this is what Jesus and what John is going to make sure we understood. This is what Jesus tries to show him. Nicodemus, this is the easy part. You need to be born again. You need to be born of water and of the Spirit. And we get hung up on all the mechanics. We can get hung up on all of that. We're not going to talk about it this morning. If you want to, you can come to the small group tonight and you can ask a question and we'll have time to deal with that. It's more of a classroom kind of a setting question anyway. But even that we can get hung up on. And Jesus is like, okay, that's the beginnings. Let's, let's, let's move on. Let's keep going. What's actually supposed to happen in the life of a believer? One more way. I just want to emphasize how important this is. Don't you love that lady? I don't even know her. But you can just tell that lady is a hoot. Can't you tell? I know we got some people like that. I know we do. Uh, 100th birthdays. When you get together and celebrate a 100th birthday, what are you celebrating? You're not celebrating the moment that this person slid down the birth canal, are you? I mean, really? That's not what a birthday is about. And if it is, I'm sorry, I'm going to be real honest. Your family's kind of weird, okay? So what are birthdays really about? The first one might be, because it's still very close in the mama's memory, all that, right? It might be. But what is really a birthday all about? It's about everything that happens after that. It's about what you become. It's about what you do. It's about the memories you have and the accomplishments you have. It's about the trophies on your shelf. It's about the jokes you told at the family reunion. It's about all that stuff, isn't it? It's about what kind of a servant of God you become. It's about what kind of a, a, a lover of your children and your family you've become. It's about what kind of a good neighbor you are and a servant of Christ that you are. It's all those things. It's not the one moment where you were born. The praise that comes at your hundredth birthday is about the myriad of moments where you were serving the Lord and sharing light and being a light on a hill. It's about all of that, isn't it? And this is actually a part of what their conversation hits on. And you might not have ever thought about it this way, uh, but, but John did. Okay? I get no credit. John thought about it this way because he tries to get us to focus on this. It's really all about the living. Look at verses 19 to 21. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Okay, let me explain where I'm coming from on this. First, let's go back to why 
we're talking about light and darkness. There are two reasons. One, this is a really central theme throughout the Gospel of John. John starts in John 1.1 with this theme, okay? He's talking constantly about the light of Christ, the light of the kingdom of God, and the light of the presence of God and of the Spirit. Holiness, purity, redemption, eternal life, all these things are wrapped up in light. And he constantly talks about the darkness that we find ourselves trapped in outside of Christ. The darkness that enslaves us in our sin. And John sees this conversation with Nicodemus as a parallel to all these things. Nicodemus comes. How? In the dark. He comes with questions. He comes with doubts. He comes with what seems to be also the seedlings of belief. And he comes to Jesus. He came to the right place, didn't he? He comes to Jesus and he asks his questions and he kind of gets hung up on some of the details. But he keeps asking and he keeps listening. We don't know how what his response was actually to Jesus' answers. John doesn't share that with us. He leaves it there just hanging. Nicodemus wrestling. Jesus having lobbed the ball back into his side of the court. And it's just there. Scripture does that so Often it makes us uncomfortable. We always try to make up little endings to it. But it does that so often. And we're at one of those. And John says there's a parallel here. Nicodemus, who comes in the darkness, comes in the darkness, it seems John is hitting at, because that's where he really ultimately still is. In his starting to believe but not yet believing, he is still in the darkness. And he doesn't seem to have the courage yet to step out on faith and embrace Jesus as the Messiah and embrace the kingdom as a reality and to embrace the truth that Jesus is teaching. He's, he wants to. You can see it. It's, it's starting to develop within him, but he's not there yet. And Jesus is basically saying, and John is reinforcing, Nicodemus, you need to step out into the light. And here's why. And John minces no words. When we hang around and hang back in the darkness, it's because something still has slavery over us and still has mastery over us. Why do we hide? Why do, why do we ever go in the darkness to begin with? Adam and Eve, Genesis 3, what happens? They eat the fruit. They have a realization about, you know, what they had. Oh, my goodness, we saw ourselves and we were naked and so we ran and we hid. You know, and so... Why? Shame. Because ultimately, what they saw when they saw their nakedness was not just nakedness. What they saw was the exposure of the fact of their disobedience. The fact that they had been told by God, you leave that alone. And they didn't. Their eyes were opened in many ways. And they go and they hide because they're afraid. Fear in that sense of God had never existed until sin. Think about that. No one was afraid of God until there was sin. There was no reason to be. They walked with Him every evening. They talked with Him. They had friendship and fellowship with God at a level we can only dream of. But we'll get there. That's the promise of eternal life. Garden of Eden renewed. But they'd lost it. And they go and they hide in the bushes. And all of us, when we sin, hide in the bushes. It's what we do. 
And when we're wrestling with our faith and we know, I think there's something to this Jesus and I think there's something to the gospel and I think maybe this may be real. One of the things that stands in our way because Satan is fighting his heart at that moment is that the darkness sometimes has become our comfort zone. Sometimes even after we've become Christians, we get lured back in and it becomes our comfort zone. Secretive, hidden, and not out in the open. What John reminds us is, you know, it doesn't do any good to stay in the darkness and hide. It doesn't do you any good to stay there because ultimately you only stay there because you're a sinner. All the other excuses, well, I just wouldn't want people in it, none of those matter. You stay there because ultimately you know that that is sin and you're afraid it will be exposed. He says that's why people stay there. Look at how he words it. The light has come into the world. The people have loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Not because the darkness was the better place to be. He does not say that. He doesn't even go as far as I said because it's comfortable, though I think that's true. He says they stay there because their works were evil. And he doesn't even say uh, in this place, though some places will, he doesn't even say that they like it there. They may hate it there. You have had times in your life when there were things in your heart and things in your mind that you were ashamed of, and you didn't like that you were having to keep those things to yourself. You were ashamed of them. But you did it because you were afraid of the light. You were afraid of truth. You were afraid of exposure. And what John and Jesus would tell us is, the exposure happens anyway. Jesus comes again. We looked at this last week. Jesus comes again. The light shines regardless. There's two ways to react to it. To try and dig deeper back into the darkness, which is just into more misery and more pain, more secrecy and more shame. Or to finally say, you know what? I believe and take a step out into the light. And you know what you will find? In Christ is grace. We don't think that we're in the dark when we're in the darkness. We assume what we will find is judgment and condemnation and lightning strikes and pain. That's the devil's trap. That's the devil's trap. What Jesus wanted us to know is what's said here by John back up in seventeen when he said he didn't come to condemn the world. He came to save the world, to be able to call you out of the darkness and into, as Scripture says, into His glorious light. So people stay because they've gotten comfortable back there. They're afraid to step out of the darkness. They're afraid of all the consequences. But I'm telling you, you need to step forward. I think this is ultimately what Jesus is trying to get Nicodemus to see. You can only come into the light if you're born again. If by faith you submit to the Holy Spirit and submit to the Lord Jesus and are buried with Christ in baptism and raised with Christ through His grace and through His gift, then you come into the kingdom of light. And what you find is not that you should have been afraid of light exposing. What you find is that the light 
is purifying. That's 1 John 1. The light purifies us. His blood purifies us from all sin. When? When we walk in the light as he is in the light. Jesus is trying to get Nicodemus to see you don't have to be afraid. Come on into the light. There's no reason to stay in darkness. He's trying to get us to see. There's no reason to stay in that darkness. And then John says this, and we'll close with this. Verse 21, whatever, or excuse me, whoever does what is true comes into the light. You want to be true to yourself? It's kind of a mantra in our culture at the moment. You've got to be true to yourself. Yes, being true to yourself may not mean indulging yourself. Think about that. Being true to yourself may mean the truest thing that you can do is to say, God has created me for better than this darkness. God created me for light. God created you for this, for works that bring God glory. And look at what it says. So that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So that God, people can see you and say, wow, God is at work in this person. It's Matthew 5.16. Let your light so shine among men that they see your good deeds and praise God who is in heaven. That is why he calls us into the light. Because you become an absolute ambassador of that kingdom as you now shed light to people who are in dark places. As you give life through the gospel of Jesus to people who are in dark places. If you want to be part of that work, then I would call you and God would call you and John is calling you and Jesus is calling you. And I think at this point Nicodemus would call you to come and to give your life to Christ.